Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. If you have your Bibles this morning, you can open them to Psalm 88. We're going to read that this morning. As you find your place, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, The text will also be on the uh, screens, but allow me to read to you the inscription of the psalm as well. And it says, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath Le'enoth, a maskal of Haman the Ezraite. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves." You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Let's pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for your word, and specifically this morning for this psalm. Give us spiritual ears to hear what you would be teaching us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, you probably will not be surprised to hear that Psalm 88 is typically classified as a psalm of lament like some other psalms in Scripture, but Psalm 88 is unique. Other laments, like Psalm 10 or Psalm 13 or Psalm 130, generally travel along along an arc by which they descend into the darkness, and then at some point in the psalm they swing back upward with expressions of confidence in God's goodness, expressions of joy in His presence, and hope in the coming light of His redemption. But not Psalm 88. Psalm 88 doesn't swing back up. It simply leaves us staring at the dark at the end of the tunnel. It literally ends with darkness. My companions have become darkness in the ESV, or the NIV translates it. The darkness is my closest friend. The psalm leaves us searching for some kind of light switch, but the walls are smooth. Looking for some kind of match, but our pockets are empty wanting some kind of beam of light to break through, but there are no windows. It just seems hopeless. And you might ask, 
should this psalm even be in the Bible? I mean, what are we supposed to get from the psalm? What good comes from understanding the presence of this psalm in Scripture? Well, remember that the psalms are given to help us express not just our joy and our praise, but all of our emotions, including our sorrows and our lament. And so through the pen of Haman the Ezraite, God gives us language by which we can respond to the dark at the end of the tunnel, to respond to those situations when we're asking, like the characters in Bunyan's work, what shall we do? The life we're now living is miserable. Shall we be ruled by the giant? Well, the first thing that Psalm 88 teaches is express your pain. Express your pain in these moments. Most of this psalm consists of the psalmist giving honest expression to and describing his anguish. His soul is full of troubles in verse 3. In verse 4, he has no energy or motivation. His strength is gone. We see in verse 5, he feels dead like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. He also feels overwhelmed, like he's drowning all the time. You overwhelm me with all your waves. His friends have deserted him. He feels rejected and lonely in verse 8, and he even feels like God has rejected him as well. In verse 14, he says, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? He also, in verse 8, feels trapped and helpless. I am shut in so that I cannot escape, and he cannot get rid of his constant sadness. In verse 9, my eye grows dim through sorrow. Can you relate to any of that? Are there seasons in your life where you feel like it just goes from one problem to the next, one frustration to the next, one disappointment to the next, and your soul is full of troubles? Do you ever feel overwhelmed, like you're drowning with the demands of work, drowning with the demands in your relationship with your family, and you don't think you have any strength to just keep going on, but there's no way of escape? It just keeps coming at you, and you've lost energy, you've lost motivation, and you just want to stop. You just want to get out, but you feel trapped. Maybe you feel trapped and suffocating in a rotten marriage, and you desperately want to get out, but you know that getting out might lead you to lose your children, cost you your reputation, cost you your ministry, and so you feel trapped in a miserable situation. Or you're suffering, suffering under abusive authority of your parents, and you'd get out if you could, but you know you can't make it on your own. And so you feel trapped. Maybe you're struggling with feelings of isolation and loneliness, where you're around people all the time, but you don't feel like you have one single good friend that you can be vulnerable with. Oh, and by the way, God doesn't seem to be listening much either. and doesn't seem to be caring about your plight. And maybe because of some of these reasons, or for reasons you can't fully explain, you just feel dread feel dread about every day, every evening, and every next day. You feel dead inside. Nothing excites you. Nothing gives enthusiasm. There's no joy in living. There's just the dark at the end of the tunnel. 
And then, to top it all off, you might be made to feel like there's something wrong with you, that there's something wrong with your faith in these moments because it's not Christian. Christians aren't supposed to feel this way. After all, what kind of faith is this in Psalm 88? What kind of faith are we reading about here? Well, if nothing else, we're, we're reading an honest one. One who is willing to give candid expression to the depths of pain, anguish, disappointment, despair, and brokenness that's experienced in a fallen world. And that honesty is important. To be honest with the realities of what living in a fallen world is like. Pastor Alexander McLaren, who was pastoring in England, I believe, in the 1800s, he said this. He said, every life has dark tracks and long stretches of somber tint. And no representation is true to fact which dips its pencil only in light and flings no shadows on the canvas. It's just true. There are stretches of darkness that we all face in life. So contrary to popular notions, the Bible does not give to us an idealized, sanitized picture of what life in a fallen world is like. The scriptures intend to speak to a people who live in a world where they have to grapple with chronic illness, with sick and dying children, with natural disasters, a world where people are losing their jobs and under great financial difficulty, where people experience crumbling marriages, divorce, coming out of broken homes and broken families. The Bible is written to people who are struggling with addictions, who are dealing with the hurt of betrayal and loneliness and the trauma of war and the wounds of abuse and the difficulty of Alzheimer's disease. And it's written to people who also are confronted with the dungeon of giant despair and are staring at the dark at the end of the tunnel. Life can seem cruel in a fallen world. The Bible is realistic and honest about that. Life can feel cruel in a fallen world, and we can be honest about that as well. It's a myth that faith is always smiling. It's a myth that faith is always smiling. Sometimes faith is lamenting. And that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It doesn't mean that there's something deficient in your faith, and it doesn't mean that you're being punished. Charles Spurgeon, who battled frequent depression, said this, No sin is necessarily connected with sorrow of heart. For Jesus Christ our Lord once said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. And there was no sin in him, and consequently none in his deep depression. The Bible does not demand that you deny or suppress your pain, your disappointment, your hurt, your anguish, your discouragement, and your struggle with hopelessness. This psalm invites you to express your pain. To do so is not a sign of unbelief. Sometimes the words of Psalm 88 belong on our lips in a fallen world. Sometimes that's true. But while faith isn't always smiling, what is true about faith, true faith, is it's always fixed on God. And so not only are we invited to express our pain, this psalm also instructs you to establish your gaze. 
That's the second thing. Establish your gaze. Notice that the psalmist is not just expressing his pain. He's expressing his pain to God. His posture is toward God throughout the entire psalm. He begins in verses 1 and 2. I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. See, sometimes in the darkness of the pit, all that we can do is cry out to God. And that is an expression of faith. Often it's an expression of courageous faith to cry out to God, as he does in verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. First thing in the morning, my first thought is toward you. My prayer comes before you. There's two things we can do when we're looking at the dark at the end of the tunnel. We can turn toward God in faith, or we can turn away from God in unbelief and bitterness. And Psalm 88 is teaching us to establish our gaze upon God, to turn toward Him, and not just express our pain, but perhaps even sing in the darkness. Psalm 88 is teaching us to maybe even sing to God in the darkness, because remember, the Psalms are songs. And what we discover here is that God welcomes not just our songs of joy and of praise, but he welcomes our sad songs as well of sorrow and lament. Notice also in the inscription that this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were the doorkeepers at the tabernacle, the doorkeepers of the temple. They were placed at the door of the place of worship. This is a psalm, a song of the sons of Korah, which tells us this. But the reason we want to establish our gaze upon God is because honest lament is part of our worship of God. Honest lament is part of worshiping Him. So if you ever wonder if God welcomes you when you're having a hard time finding joy in life and finding joy in His providence and arranging your circumstances, if you ever wonder whether you're still welcome, read Psalm 88 a psalm of the sons of Korah, where God is saying, bring your pain, bring your sorrow, bring your despair, bring your struggle of hopelessness here. Those things don't disqualify you from entering God's presence in worship. God knows about it already. He's not going to be shocked and he's not going to be repulsed. He welcomes you in your struggle. If you're not going to be able to bring them here before God, where are you going to take them? The psalm welcomes us to bring them to God in worship, which also challenges us to be a place where we welcome that in others as well, where we welcome others to give honest expression to their struggle with despair and with darkness. But Haman the Ezraite also establishes his gaze on God, not just to express his pain, to bring honest lament before God in worship, but he, he realizes that God has placed him in this pit of darkness. God has placed him there. Look in verses 6 through 8 again. This is what he writes. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. The psalmist doesn't 
blame blind fate. He doesn't really, in the end, blame Satan. He acknowledges the sovereignty of God even over his darkness. And God is sovereign over those seasons of our darkness and our pain and our anguish as well. And so we establish our gaze upon God because God is sovereign over our darkness. But that leaves us with the question, right? Why would God cause pain and misery and bring us into the darkness of the dungeon of giant despair, there to be assaulted by that despair? Or even maybe what feels like to be assaulted by Him. Listen to what the psalmist says in verse 16. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Why? Why are people made to stare at the dark at the end of the tunnel? I'm not going to pretend to have the answer to that in every case. And I want to be very clear as well. I'm not trying to address exhaustively all the ways in which we can properly respond to clinical depression. Questions to have to do with physiological and underlying biological causes, the path of, of medication, all those are valid considerations to think about. I'm simply trying to address and identify the proper spiritual responses when we're facing despair more broadly, but that would include clinical depression. In the midst of clinical de depression, there are other questions to address, but express that pain and express that pain to God. Establish your gaze upon Him because He is sovereign over that. But what would that mean? But God is sovereign over that darkness. Well, let me suggest just one thing. It might be that God removes the light and your joy from you for a season in order to teach you that nothing and no one accounts for your comfort in this life ultimately but God and God only. Not His blessings, not His gifts, but Him and Him alone is your ultimate source of comfort in this life. Sometimes he will strip you of the idols in which you trust. Sometimes he will deprive you of the blessings that you mistake for your source of light and life in order to remove your gaze from them and establish your gaze upon him. C.S. Lewis experienced this uh, after he lost his wife. He wrote a book called A Grief Observed, and C.S. Lewis said this, God always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. Sometimes that's what God is doing in our life. He's knocking down our house of cards. The things that we mistake as light, that are not light, that are not our hope, that are not our comfort. He exposes those so that we can learn, so that God can teach us in the darkness that He is enough, that He is sufficient, that He can teach us to say with Job, though He slay me, yet I will hope in him. He's teaching us to say that. The dark at the end of the tunnel provides the child of God with an opportunity to cry out to God in faith and to learn that his grace, his presence, he is sufficient. He's a sufficient source of light and a sufficient source of our hope. And that brings us to the third thing. Psalm 88 teaches us to embrace our hope. Embrace your hope. Given everything we read in Psalm 88, perhaps the most surprising part of it is how it starts. Not only do we find the psalmist here expressing his pain, establishing his gaze by turning toward God, but he is embracing his hope as well. 
by praying at the outset these words, O Lord, O Yahweh, the God of covenant promise, God of my salvation. By the way, that's not just an expression of faith that God is there and that he can hear. It's an expression of faith that God cares and that he is able to bring the hope of light. He is able to bring salvation, deliverance, and redemption even in the dark at the end of the tunnel. The psalmist seems to remember that God has promised him never to leave him or forsake him. That means not in the pit, not in the depths, not in the darkness. He might place you there, but he will not forsake you there. And our ultimate assurance of this and comfort in this is actually more than what Haman the Ezraite had. Because our ultimate assurance of this and comfort in this is Jesus. That we're not alone in that darkness and in that pit. Jesus is one who can sympathize with us in our darkness. In Jesus we find one who gets it, he understands. Jesus knows the pain of loss, of betrayal, of sorrow, as the man of sorrows. He knows injustice loneliness, poverty. He knows what it is to be exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. See, Jesus understands your darkness because he's been there. Jesus suffered darkness. The light went out for Jesus for three hours when he was on the cross, right? Darkness. And in that darkness, what do we find Jesus do? We find him expressing his pain. We find him establishing his gaze upon his father and crying out in faith and in hope, my God. Notice the pronoun there. Not just God, even in the darkness, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? But in those words, it's revealed that in Jesus, we not only have someone who can sympathize with us in our darkness, we have someone who can save us from that darkness, someone who brings us salvation. Listen, what the cross secures for us is not merely the sympathy of God. What the cross secures for us is immunity of ever being forsaken in the darkness like Jesus was. Because Jesus didn't just feel forsaken on the cross. He was forsaken on the cross because he was bearing your sin he was bearing my sin. And the father turned his face away from his son, but in doing so, the father turned his face toward us in love and grace and mercy and pardon and has promised never to forsake us. And we can be assured of that because he forsook his son on the cross. And so you can know in the dark at the end of the tunnel that God will never forsake you. In those times where you find yourself in the darkness of the dungeon of giant despair, you are not alone. And there is redemption and there is deliverance from the darkness because Jesus brings the light of hope. Jesus is the God of your salvation. And of course, having said that, that doesn't mean that we won't experience time in the darkness of the dungeon of giant despair. It means we're not hopeless there. But the reality is sometimes Christians experience darkness in this fallen world. And oftentimes, God dispels that darkness by bringing in His light like He does in so many of the other psalms of lament. 
But there's other times where it just seems that there's only the dark at the end of the tunnel, like in Psalm 88. But the darkness doesn't mean that you're not a child of God. That is to misinterpret it. That's not what it means. The darkness doesn't mean that his affection and steadfast love has not been forever set upon you. There's just dark. We live in a dark world. And we're affected by that darkness around us and within us to varying degrees. And again, I don't have all the answers for that, what that looks like. But it doesn't mean you're not a child of God. William Cooper, who wrote the hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. I don't know if this is an accurate picture of him or not. Um, but we sang that song earlier. He struggled a lot with despair. He was actually institutionalized on a number of occasions, just unable to function. It was said of William Cooper, it's possible to be a child of God without consciousness of the blessing. Just because you're not conscious of the blessing doesn't mean it's not true. And it's possible to have title to a crown and yet feel immured in the depths of a dungeon. What do you do if you're William Cooper? What do you do if you find yourself in the darkness of the dungeon of giant despair? Is your only option to grind out a miserable existence? No. Don't just grind out. Cry out. Express your pain and establish your gaze by turning toward God and bringing to Him your very, your very real sense of despair and your struggle with hopelessness and your pain and your sorrow and your lament and your disappointment and your discouragement. Bring it to God. But bring it to the God of your salvation the God in whom there is hope of deliverance. Bring it to the God of your salvation who promises to never leave you or forsake you in that darkness, but who also promises that the dark at the end of the tunnel isn't actually the end after all. Psalm 88 is real. It's a real experience that followers of Christ can, can, go, can undergo. But Psalm 88 isn't the whole Bible. It isn't the end of the scriptures. God promises that in the end, the darkness will be overcome. There will be a light that dispels the darkness in the end. There will be comfort that drives out despair. There will be life that triumphs over the grave through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, through Jesus the Messiah, the conqueror of the grave, and the light of the world. The sun is no less real when the darkness of night is hiding it. It's no less real. And what is certain is that that sun will rise. And the sun and the light will rise in the end when Jesus comes back. And at that time, there will be no more darkness and no more night. Psalm 88 isn't the end of the Bible. But at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, we read this. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we admit that this world can trouble our soul and that we wrestle with despair. Lord, help us by your grace to express our pain honestly to you, to others, that we would establish our gaze upon you to bring those things before you in worship and to know that you're sovereign over those things and you 
are our source of hope. Help us to embrace by your grace our hope in those difficult moments. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, our light and our conqueror of all things. Uh, Lord, we need your grace to do this, but we pray for your hope in Jesus' name. Amen.